your hope. Blessed be, uh, this is verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've taught us, you've revealed yourself to us um, in this great book. And I pray for your Holy Spirit to come and take these words and just breathe hope, breathe life into us that uh, with the hope that uh, you give to us, we might serve you faithfully, we may um, not lose heart, we may remain steadfast as we uh, serve you, follow you in this life, and as we look forward to the life to come. I pray that these uh, words uh, of First Peter uh, would just minister to those, uh, especially here, uh, who feel like hope is far from them. And uh, they are filled with anxiety about the future. Uh, recharge, renew our hope um, for our life, for our salvation, um, and in your purposes. And we ask this in the name of our mighty Savior, Jesus. Amen. Um, so, uh, this, as I said, this is the fourth and final week in our series titled Soul Care. And the idea of this series has been that, uh, you know, in our culture, it's Many of us, uh, many of you probably go to counseling or, or some kind of therapy, and um, one of the things that a counselor does for us, uh, many things that, that you know, the average Christian can't do for us, so counseling is a really valuable thing, but a lot of things that they do do for us, you know, they listen to us, they ask us questions about our life, they, if they're a Christian counselor, they teach us the gospel and point us to God. A lot of these things that counselors do for us, you'd think we should be able to do for each other. And so what we've been doing is a series looking at a biblical worldview of what, is the, what tools does the Bible have for us to understand how we care for each other's souls. So the first week we looked at um, what does the Bible say about what it means to be human. We looked at the doctrine of creation. What is, what is a human? What is my soul? If I'm a human, how does a human properly function, right? And then the second week we looked at the fall and what is broken. What is brokenness? What is broken about humanity? If my soul isn't working right... <laughs> What's the problem? And looked at a biblical answer to that. Last week, we looked at, um, at God's redemption. How, what, how does God heal us, rescue us from our brokenness? And we said that he cleanses us. He cleanses us in Christ through confession, through a community, and through Christ. This last week, we're looking at restoration, the fourth part of the biblical story. The biblical story is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The restoration is that at the end of the Bible, uh, God will make all things new. What does that have to teach us about how we care for each other's soul? And, um, you know, I want to just take a moment because uh, over the course of this uh, series, I've had a, uh, a number of conversations with some of you um, asking roughly the same question. 
if someone, asking, if someone bears their soul to me, someone opens up about something they don't tell anyone, maybe they've never told anyone else, what do I say to them? And the reason they're asking this question is because I've said it a number of points during this month, is that we, we need to be really careful about, you know, if someone opens up to us, you know, we just say, hey, God's working it for good. You know, how's, how's the weather? You know, and we change the subject, and people don't feel very cared for or loved in that, right? Or, or even if we just immediately say, well, I'll, I'll pray for you. Um, or, um, or, or we just tag a Bible verse onto their problem. Uh, people don't feel cared by that. And so there's a trite way of, of taking the scriptures and handling each other's souls. But the question is, okay, if there's a trite way to do it, what's the not trite way to do it? I don't want to handle people tritely. So how do I, what do I say then? And uh, do I just not say anything? Do I just sit there and listen and say, don't they want me to say something? Of course, the answer is yes. And um, I want to just say a few things about this before we get started this morning. And the first thing that we need to know is when someone bears their soul to us, and we're going to take the scriptures and apply the scriptures to their life. We have to understand that this is a 2,000-year-old book, or 2,000-plus-year-old book, and uh, we're living in Bellingham 2013. So there's some bridge that has to happen from this book into our lives. And um, theologians have always said that that bridge happens by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes these words and applies them into our hearts and into our lives. And so as you're caring for someone, someone's opening their life to you, we depend on the Spirit to give us words. And as you're listening and you're asking questions and drawing out their story and what's happening to them, the Spirit will give you words, will give you scriptures to apply at the right time, and you'll know it. I mean, how, I, I think most Christians have had that experience where they were saying, yeah, this person was telling me about all his problems, and then words just came out of my mouth. I'd never even had this thought before, and they just happened. And, and that's the Spirit, taking God's word and applying it into people's lives. So it's first, we wait on the Spirit, we depend on the Spirit. But another thing that's related to this is we avoid being trite with people by not trying to fix them, control them, or avoid them. It's when we're uncomfortable and saying, I don't want to deal with this problem, that's when we tend to be trite. We're just trying to end, uh, end, end, uh, end the discussion. And, um, uh, and this can happen in a number of ways. It can happen by uh, saying, you know, oh, I'll pray for you. Or if someone shares something with you and you say, oh, you should probably see a counselor about that. Now, listen, they may need to see a counselor about that. But when you say that, you say, I don't want to be the one to deal with this. Go see someone else, right? So we have to be careful about saying that. That should be maybe the end of the conversation. We say, hey, you know, you ever think about talking to someone else about that? But don't immediately say, whoa, that's out of my... Uh, out of my pay grade, okay? Um, the, go see someone else about it. So we'd be careful. Um, but once we've entered into people's pain and struggled with them and wrestled with them, absolutely, they need us to speak hope into them, to pray for them, to give them the gospel, to give them the scriptures. And actually, uh, just, just this last week, I was, uh, I was uh, meeting with Chris Van Hoffergen. Chris is one of our elders here. And he, came, he comes over in the morning. We work out together, play basketball together. And I was talking with him. And then the day before, I, Shannon and I had, had had an argument. And I was telling him, you know, Shannon and I had an argument. We went to bed not that well. I didn't, I didn't handle it in the most exemplary fashion. And, um, and so, I, you know, I'm, I'm confessing these things to him. And what he did was, you know, he looked at me. And he grieved with me about my sin. You know, he didn't say, oh, we all do that. He didn't do that. He looked at me like, man. It's not good, but I'm sorry. It's not good, but I'm sorry. And then, and then, you know, he sat with me in it for a minute, and then he prayed for me. 
That's exactly what I needed. I needed him to feel it with me, feel that he loved me, and then have him pray for me and challenge me. And that combination, that's an art, but the Spirit leads in all that. And so we need to give each other the scriptures. But in particular, what we're looking at this morning is that one of the things, as people's hearts and souls are broken and they're, they're torn up and they're sharing things with you, the thing we need to speak to one another is hope. We need to have a word of hope to give to each other. And, um, you know, I think um, in the vast majority of situations, if someone's bearing their soul to you, uh, hope is probably the thing they need the most because, uh, you know, what is depression? I mean, depression is, could almost be defined as a sense of hopelessness. I don't want to get out of bed because I don't think this day has anything good for me. There's this loss of hope. There's nothing in the future. The future only has pain and sorrow for me. And so what we need from each other, what we need to hear from each other, is a word of hope, the, the, the hope that the scriptures give us. And uh, Dan Allender, who I've, uh, I've referred to a number of times uh, throughout uh, uh, this series, uh, he, he defines hope this way. Hope is the quiet, sometimes incessant call to dream for the future. It is a, a dreaming for the future. Hope looks at the shattered remnants of the soul hit by a storm and envisions not merely rebuilding, but rebuilding a life that has even more purpose and meaning than existed before the loss. So hope is this restoration about what's to come, what is God going to do, what is in my future. And so uh, this morning, I want to lead us through a meditation on a Christian understanding of hope. What does the Bible have to tell us about hope? This passage is incredible that we're about to look at. And what I want to do is um, we look at this little passage from 1 Peter. I want to highlight four areas of hope that the scriptures give us. And uh, the first is uh, that the scriptures give us hope for forever. Hope for our forever. This is probably the biggest, and I'll spend the most time on that up front. But second, we also get hope for our perseverance. We get hope for our suffering, and we get hope for our character. For our forever, our perseverance, our suffering, and our character. And, uh, and uh, these four things uh, call us to dream about our future and uh, long for more in our lives, stirs up desires in us, okay? So, what hope do we have as Christians? What hope do we have to give one another? The first is this, we have hope for our forever. It's kind of hard to say. Hope for our forever, okay? Got it. Okay, first, hope for our forever. Now, um, most of the people, most of the time, when people think about the Bible or Christianity, um, they uh, and the, the understanding that they have uh, about the Bible and the, uh, about the Bible and the hope that it gives is about the afterlife, right? That you you go to church, you learn about God, you learn about the Bible because it's going to teach you about the afterlife. Now, many of the things that actually many Christians, but especially non-Christians, have under, many of their understandings about what the Bible teaches about the afterlife are actually not what the Bible teaches. And I'm, I'm going to read you a little. Uh, this is from a, a Maria Shriver. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's wife wrote a little children's book on heaven, and this is, what, this is how she describes heaven. Heaven is somewhere you believe in. It's a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk to other people who are there. At night, you can sit next to stars, which are the brightest of anywhere in the universe. If you're good throughout your life, then you get to go to heaven, 
When your life is finished here on earth, God sends angels down to take you up to heaven to be with him. Okay? So this picture of I'm from this cloud to the next. Okay? Um, now, many of us, when we think of, wow, forever? i got to bounce around on clouds forever? That's all I'm going to do? I'm not going to, you know, a lot of us, if you live in Bellingham, you're a recreational kind of town. That's just like, no, that's like, uh, not, not, uh, not that vision of heaven. And, um, but, you know, now, let me say, first of all, that the Bible does say that if you're in Christ, if, you, if you, you're tr- you have a relationship with God through Christ, your sins have been forgiven. When you die, your soul immediately goes to be with God. But one thing that we don't often know as, as Christians is that's actually not our salvation. Our salvation is something different. Um, and uh, the Bible gives us a hope for our salvation that's even bigger than that. And uh, look again at what, this, what uh, Peter says in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, let me, I need to explain this sentence, a few things from this. Well, first of all, um, Peter says that if you are a Christian um, and you've put your, your uh, trust in Christ, you have been born again to a living hope. You've been born again. So it means, you know, think about what it means to be born, right? You're born and you, uh, you kind of burst into the world and all of a sudden there's all this stuff and colors and trees and, you know, that's what babies are like. Their eyes are wide open and, and just, you know, their brain is just absorbing information all the time and they're filled with wonder. That's what children are. And what he's saying is we, we have such an enormous hope that we have that is living inside of us, that we have in Christ, that it, it is... Um, it's like being coming into a new world that's filled with wonder and enchantment. And uh, everything has been colored differently. Everything about our life has been colored differently. And it's shining, and it's radiant, and it's all these things. And, um, and to become a Christian is to be um, alive with hope. But what is the hope? He says uh, that, he, uh, that uh, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Those two words, resurrection and inheritance, are how he describes our hope. Now, let me explain those to you. You know, when I first became a Christian, I I didn't grow up in the church, and I I knew zero about the Bible. So, I mean, I was just reading it. I'm trying to figure it out. What is this, uh, what is this? book about. And one of the things that was very odd to me was, you know, I read the New Testament first, and it's a lot about the kingdom of heaven and eternal life and all these things. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, after you die, you go to be with God, and that's your salvation. And then I go read the Old Testament. And there was nothing about eternal life in, in heaven. It was all about um, these promises. You're going to get a chunk of land, and you're going to have lots of babies, and you're going to have orchards and wells, and all this stuff, and it seemed very earthy. And I was like, this is so weird. So why, where's all the heaven? Why did they, you know, I thought we weren't supposed to care about all these earthy things. We're supposed to, uh, we're supposed to care about spiritual things in heaven. What's going on? And what I didn't understand um, was that the Old Testament is preparing us to understand what eternal life is in the, in, the New, in the New Testament. Because um, all those things that it's describing are the inheritance. God was giving to these people a piece of land. And so for the Old Testament people, for them, salvation would not be that I'd go and float around on clouds. They'd say, what? Why would I want to float around on clouds? I want to live in God's good creation, free from death, free from sickness, free from sin, free from war. 
I want God's kingdom. I don't want to go up into the clouds. I want heaven to come into earth. And heaven and earth become one place where we'll live together. And, and God, and, and you, as you read the New Testament, that's what you see, right? What does Jesus say? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Right? And uh, uh, Romans says, uh, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be heir of the world. Isaiah says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover, cover the sea. So let me just tell you what this means. Christian salvation is not just that our souls, when we die, would go to be with God but that Jesus is going to come back and he is going to raise the dead in our bodies and he's going to bring heaven to earth and he's going to renew the whole earth and we're going to live together in God's physical creation with bodies in some place in, in the earth like this, but it's going to be transformed. And so there's gardening and dirt and food and singing and working with your hands and all of the, the good things about being in this life where we just have touches of saying, finally, I'm, you know, when you're working with your hands, you're loving people, you're saying, finally, I'm, I'm being what God made me to be in his creation. That's what our hope is. And that we will live forever in the presence of God in, in a new heavens and a new earth where heaven and earth have become one place. That's the hope of a Christian. And uh, that there will be no bitterness, no more sorrow, and my heart will just be filled with love to God and love to other people. I'll finally be what God made me to be. That is the hope of a Christian. It's far, radically different than bouncing around on clouds. <laughs> radically different, and yet far more beautiful. You know, uh, my daughter Ada put it well a couple months ago. We were driving in the car, and she's got a sweet little voice. She says, Daddy, when we die, we'll all go to sleep. But then Jesus will come back, and he'll wake us up, and he'll take away all the tears, and we'll live with him forever. Death, Jesus has transformed death into a nap. Ada knows that it's, I'm just going to sleep, and then he's going to wake me up and wipe away the tears, and we're going to live with God forever in this new creation that's radically transformed. This is the hope of what it is to be a Christian. That if you're in Christ, you have a share in that inheritance, in that land, in the whole, in the whole earth. And this is our hope um, for forever. Now, some people, many people, I think, in our culture would hear something like that and say, okay, let me get this straight. You think that God is going to come back after we're all dead, and he's going to raise up our bodies out of the ground, and you're going to live in the earth forever in the presence of God. I mean, how... <laughs> How can I believe that? How can I be a thinking human being, an adult, and really take seriously this world and believe in something like that? Well, the first thing is that Jesus says, in order to believe something like that, you need to become like Ada. You need to become a child, and so you've got to learn from Ada. But the other thing is this. You have to know, uh, find any other hope anywhere in the world that comes anywhere close to that. There is nothing. No other vision of salvation. You know, uh, if you're a Buddhist, your idea is that you would die and your soul would morph into the, the sea of existence. Your, your personality would be gone. There's nothing left of you. There is no hope, anything like this. And as Christians, the reason we believe in this, well, the reason we believe actually we can believe in something like this, eternal life embodied in God's creation, in his presence forever, is because it's already happened. It already happened in Jesus. It's already happened once in history, in this world, in a real place, in a real chunk of land with a real guy. And we look at him, and that's why he says we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus has already done it. The inheritance has already begun. The new world has already begun in him. 
And so we believe that we have a share in the world to come because the world to come, the world of resurrection, has shown itself in Jesus. So, now some of you maybe have never heard this before. You might say, is this, is this really what Christians believe? Well, first of all, the Apostles' Creed, which is the oldest statement of Christian belief, says we believe in the resurrection of the body. Christians always believe that, have always believed that, the renewal of the earth. But you say, okay, so are you saying that heaven is going to be just like earth here? Is it just going to be just like this place, or is it going to be different? I'll tell you what it's kind of like. Um, when I, uh, I became a Christian when I was 16, and I was in a lot of trouble, and uh, the Lord rescued me, gave me a new life, and, um, when, and uh, my parents were kind of observing this new life, this transformation that had happened. My mom said to me, you know, you're a radically different person, radically different, and yet you're still the same old Nate. You're a radically different person, but you're still the same old Nate. You say, how, how is that? Well, I don't know. It makes sense. I'm, still, I'm radically different, and that's what's going to happen with the creation. This creation is going to be radically different, and yet it's going to be the same old creation. God doesn't scrap his good work. He made a good creation. He's not going to scrap it. He's going to renew it. He didn't scrap me. He's not going to scrap the earth. And we're going to live in it. We're going to live in his presence, and that was his intention to dwell with us. And the reason I spent so much time on this this is my first point. I got four, and oh, I, they won't all be that long. But the, uh, the reason I spend so much time on this is because we don't talk about it enough. We don't long for that inheritance, for that resurrection, that, that that's where I'm going. We don't, that doesn't stir our imaginations. You know, actually, I heard a young pastor, um, he was in a video or something, and he was, he was talking about how, you know, Christians have spent so much time talking about heaven and the life to come. And he says, you know, I don't need a God who's going to be in the future and the life to come. I need a God who's now. Let me just tell you, don't be so foolish. Everything that will enable you to love, to believe, to persevere, to suffer, all those things, is when your imagination, your heart, has a new world living inside of it that you have a share in. And when you believe in that, that is how, what enables us actually to do God's work in the world, is we need this picture of this amazing, um, this amazing hope for forever. Luke Ferry, who's an atheist uh, philosopher, and, uh, a French atheist philosopher, said this, I grant you that amongst the available doctrines of salvation, nothing can compete with Christianity. He doesn't believe in it. It's too wild. He's not like Ada yet. And if he became like Ada, he could embrace it. Uh, but he says nothing else in the world compares to it the salvation and the hope that we have. So this is the first thing about hope, is that we need to remember that we need to somehow learn to talk about it and, te- and remind one another. But you may say, okay, wow, that's great. I live with God's presence. I'm free of sin. I'm free of death and disease. And I'm in a body and I'm gardening still. And I got a house and God's there with him. We eat with him and we love each other. And it's just finally life is what it's meant to be. But don't, how am I going to get there? Because, you know, the only way to get there is that I stay with Jesus and I hold on and I, I believe all the way to the end and my faith feels so fragile. It's, 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 I'm, I feel like I'm barely holding on and uh, how am I going to make it all the way to that time? And I'm so racked with sin and, I, and my heart does all these crazy things. How am I going to make it to the end? This is the second hope that we have. It's not just our hope for forever, but also our hope for perseverance. Our hope for perseverance. Look at this amazing statement, verse 5. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
Peter says that not only does God prepare this amazing inheritance for you that in the life to come, that we'll be with him forever and free from sin, but he's going see to see you there. He, you're going to be guarded by God's power. He's going to protect you. He's going to shield you to make sure that you get there. That um, if he has given you eternal life, he's going to hold on to you. And he's not, he doesn't just say, if you hold on tight enough, if you believe enough, he says he's going to hold on to you. And this is actually exactly what uh, Jesus says in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I am the Father. I and the Father are one. And so he says, not only is he guarding us, this, this inheritance, this new life to come, but he's actually protecting us on the path there as well. He's guarding us. He's protecting us with his power. And let me just tell you, this is really important. Because, you know, how we live in the moment right now is defined by experiences we had in the past and our expectation for the future. You know, we are defined by experiences that have in the past. You know, so, for example, when I was... I was probably 12. I, you know, I was in middle school, and I, I, I was at a baseball, um, uh, the baseball fields where they had all the Little League games, and, you know, I'm kind of hanging out, eating seeds, and, and uh, there was a gal who was, uh, she was a girlfriend of one of my best friends who uh, came, and she, was, she sat next to me. She was very popular. I'd never had a conversation with her in my life. And my big braces, I'm like... You know, my <laughs> seeds all stuck in my braces. Like, hey, why are you sitting next to me? And uh, she comes up. She's like, hey, you going to Nick's um, Nick's birthday party uh, this weekend? I was like, yeah. And just this wad of spit like comes out, and she's wearing shorts, and just lands on her leg. And she's like, you just spit all over my leg. <laughs> And so, and it was, I was just humiliated that uh, I spit all over this girl's leg. I've never talked to her. I'm never going to talk to her again. And, um, and so I'll tell you, that ingrained in me, that experience in my past, so that even now, probably, if I'm talking to any female, I swallow all my spit <laughs> before I say anything. It's like ingrained in me. How I live now has been hardwired from my experiences. My experience have hardwired that into me. Your past... That's what your past does. Everything in your past is informing you, is, is, uh, is telling you how to live right now. Your past is telling you how to live. And yet also your future is telling you how to live. Right? What your expectations are for the future is telling you how to live also right now. Right? So if your expectations of the future are like, that girl would never want to date me. Well, she's not going to want to date you. <laughs> not going to know. It's not going to have a chance because you're not going to ask her. Your expectation for the future is now defining your moment right now. The past and the future are like these masses that are colliding together, squishing in right on this moment and telling me how to live right now. And what we have in the gospel is we have a new event that happened in the past, the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is a new event in the past that says this is how God works in the world. He raises the dead. And that tells me how to live right now. And we have a new event in the future that we have this inheritance that's coming, but also that God is going to, I'm going to persevere because God's guarding my faith. He's guarding, he's guarding me with his own power. He's protecting me. And so it's with that expectation that I throw myself into the world because God is, I'm, I have hope for my perseverance because God is going to guard me. And I'll tell you, um, what's interesting here is in verse 5, um, it says, you who, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Which, first of all, 
is interesting because it says that uh, your faith is the result of God's power. If you have faith in God, that means God's doing a work in you. If you're not a Christian and you're here today and you say, you know, I sense this longing for God. I, I sense like I'm hungry for the things that the Bible is saying. Let me just say that means God's power is already at work in you. He's already doing something. Because that only, faith only comes when God's power is at work in us. And I tell my kids that all the time. When they say they believe in Jesus, I say that's right. The Holy Spirit, God's power is at work in you to give you faith. Faith is a gift. But even more than that, it says that the way that God guards us is by teaching us to trust in his goodness, no matter what happens to us. The way God guards us on the path until that inheritance is, is that he teaches us to trust him to rest in him, in his goodness, no matter what happens. And this is the third kind of hope that we see. So we see hope for our forever, we see hope for our perseverance, but we also see hope for our suffering. No matter what happens, God is guarding us. Look, um, uh, we have a hope that all of our suffering that we experience in this life is under God's power, it's under his uh, protection. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice... Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And what Peter says is that we have the kind of hope, as Christians, that means whatever trials that we face right now, there is a joy in us that cannot be, cannot be shaken, cannot be taken away, no matter what suffering, no matter what trials, no matter what affliction comes into our life, it cannot be shaken, it cannot be taken away. Because our, our hope covers everything, it covers death, where our hope is that every tear will be wiped away. And so we have this joy in the midst of suffering. And um, how is that possible? Well, Peter highlights two interesting things that makes our suffering hopeful, gives us hope in our suffering. The first is this, that all our suffering is momentary. We have hope for our suffering because all our suffering is momentary. Okay, look at what he says. In this, uh, this is, uh, what is that, verse 6? Um, verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, <laughs> a little while, <laughs> Uh, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Whatever trials you have, they're only uh, for a little while. How, how can he say that? How can he say that my sufferings are momentary? I mean, maybe I've had decades of affliction and pain, you know, medical things. Maybe uh, relationships have been continually broken. Maybe my whole life. How can he say that that's just a little while? Well, it's because compared to that hope that we have, it is. Right? You, you imagine what for forever is. We have hope for, for forever that I'm going to be in God's presence forever and ever. You know, make a timeline from the end of the you know, wall here to the end of the sanctuary. That's for forever. You know, how big are my decades of affliction? You know, a little nuglet on the line. It's uh, this tiny, uh, it is a tiny small thing. And what he's calling us to do is he says whatever suffering, whatever uh, grief trials, we consistently need to compare our trials to the hope that we have for forever. We need to measure it against them. And when we measure them against them, that we see that it is only for a little while, and that's how we can endure. That's how we don't lose heart. Okay? But I think even, even more importantly than that is not just that our suffering is momentary, but also all our suffering has been appointed by God. 
All of our suffering has been appointed by God. Now, this is, uh, this is sobering truth, but it, it is essential to our hope as Christians. This is what he says. Verse 6. In this you rejoice now for a little while, if necessary. You see that little word, if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials. Now, that little word necessary is the Greek word day. And uh, it appears in places in the New Testament where an Old Testament prophecy is, is being fulfilled. You know? So, uh, for example, um, in Matthew 16, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, that's day, it was necessary to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Jesus says, it is necessary, it is day that I suffer. It is God's design. God has already written this story. And he has carefully designed that, he, that Jesus had to go to the cross. And what that means is that Peter takes that and he applies that to our suffering. Our suffering has been carefully accounted for and designed by God for his purposes. Everything. That means it is not meaningless. It means it is doing a work in us. That even the worst things that happen to us have hope in them because the sovereign Lord is behind them. Because he said it was necessary. It is his instrument and it is for our good. And we may not know um, what those purposes are, but I think when we think of our life as a story that God is writing suffering into, every story has tragedy. Every story has heartbreak, and that's what makes it a good story. You know, I'm, I'm reading a, a novel right now called The Book of Sorrows by uh, Walt Wengren. It's a powerful uh, book. It's, a, it's kind of a fantasy about these barnyard animals, but it's very dark. And pretty much every chapter of this book is, is heart-wrenching and sad. And there's no happiness has happened yet. And actually, there's this, at the beginning, there's this fox named Russell the Fox that everyone loves. And there's been this great war against all these serpents. And, and he's been poisoned by these serpents. And the poison basically uh, kills him. And it leads all the, the other animals into deep, profound mourning. And you, and you, and you say, why, didn't, why, why couldn't he have been rescued? Why, could it, why did he have to die? And, you know, you, we don't understand that. But I'll tell you, as I read that story, the one thing that doesn't happen is I don't begin to think that Walt Wangren is evil. Walt Wangren wrote that suffering and tragedy into the book, and yet, as I read the book, I'm drawn to Walt, Walt Wangren. I say, this man is wise. He is deep. He understands uh, the humanity. He understands richness. And there's something about that, that God has written our stories, and, and he's even... Uh, written heartbreak into it and yet he's good and he's wise and his purposes, his design is behind it like an author's design is behind the story that he's writing. And, um, and so even in our hope, e even in our suffering, there is hope it is not meaningless. But what could God possibly be doing? Why would he bring heartbreak heartbreak and affliction and suffering into my life. What, you know, give me something that, that it could possibly be good. Well, there's one thing that uh, the scriptures tell us, and this is the fourth kind of hope that we see in this passage. Not, we have hope for forever. We have hope for perseverance. We have hope for our suffering. But last, we have hope for our character. God uses affliction to make us like Jesus. God uses affliction to make us like Jesus. Those are his that is at least one of his purposes. And, you know, um, let me just say that most of us, when we talk about hope, 
What is your hope for your life? You know, we talk in terms of a family, careers, um, success, doing something fulfilling with my life. And let me just say, those are all good things to hope for. I, I, don't, I don't think those are bad things to hope for at all. I think those are blessings that we should long for from God, but they should not be our ultimate hope because the Bible gives us a bigger priority for the hopes for our life. And what the Bible tells us is that there is no greater tragedy that you could have in your life. Nothing worse could happen to you than that you could die without knowing how to be loved and to love. There is no greater tragedy for your life that you would die not knowing how to be loved and to love. That is the Bible's priority for you. Your capacity to expand your capacity for love, love for God and love for your neighbor. This is by far its ultimate priority above all those other things so that those other things become small. Even though they're good things, they become small uh, compared to God's priority for us. And if that, um, and you see this in this passage, uh, let me read verse 6 again. In this you rejoice, now, uh, though, now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. He has this image of what God's priority for us is our genuineness. That's, that's his priority. That's what he's testing. That's what he's drawing out, that we're authentic. That's, that's what he wants, is that we can really love, that we really love God, that who we are on the inside, we really love people. And, and that's what his priority is. And there's hope for that, that he's going to make our hearts genuine. And he uses this image of, you know, the fire, uh, that you, where, like gold that's passing through the fires in the crucible and the dross is being burned off. And, uh, and that we're being, you know, made true and genuine and pure. And, uh, you know, there's, a, there's kind of a famous story about Michelangelo and his, uh, you know, David... Um, uh, statue that he made uh, out of marble. I think it was out of marble. And someone asked him, you know, how did you make this so masterful? There's so much life, and it almost looks like he's alive, uh, the, this David sculpture. And uh, Michelangelo answered, David was always in the marble. Uh, David was always there in the marble. I just took away everything that was not David. So he saw this block of marble and he could see that David was inside there and with a chisel, he's chiseling away everything that was not David. What God is doing with us is that Christ is in us. And everything that is not Christ is being chiseled away. And those are God's designs, like a master workman, like a Michelangelo chiseling away. He actually uses our affliction and our suffering to form in us to become like Christ, to become tender, to become joyful, to be kind, to become compassionate. And suffering works all of these things in us to prevent the great tragedy that we would not know how to be loved by God and to love him and to be loved by others and to love them. This is what he's working in us. This is our hope, is to enlarge our hearts. So let me just tell you, I didn't talk a lot about counseling each other, but what I wanted to say was these are the things, these are the tools that we have as we speak hope into each other's lives. What hope do we have in the gospel? Can you find hope anywhere else in the world, anything close to this? I defy you to try. There is nothing like the hope that is in Christ. Let's learn to speak that hope to one another to build one another up, to breathe it into each other's lives, um, that this could be a community of hope at Christ Church. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, 
Our hearts long to be with you. We long for that life to come for our inheritance when we share in the resurrection and you do for us what you did for Jesus. Give us the the faith, the courage to risk and to believe that it's really true. And uh, Lord, we love you. We thank you that you've given us hope. And we pray that by your spirit you would teach us to speak hope to one another that it would uh, send us into the world a risking, venturing, with abandon, and that we might become um, a blessing to this people filled with a joy that can't be shaken, even in the midst of our suffering. And we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus.